With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Roberta Glass True Crime Report, putting the true back in true crime. From New York City, Roberta Glass is now on the record. My guest, David McKenzie, was born in Fort Lewis, Washington. An army brat, he was moved around the country before putting down roots in Oklahoma as an adult. He's been a member of the bar in good standing in the state of Oklahoma since 1988, and he's won more awards and accolades in his time as a lawyer than I have time for in this introduction. He's tried over 200 criminal trials and is the legal analyst for KFOR News in Oklahoma City, but is probably best known as Julius Jones's defense attorney in the 2002 trial of the state of Oklahoma versus Julius Darius Jones. He can be seen in ABC's documentary on the case called The Last Defense, a documentary whose depiction of the case and the evidence against Mr. Jones, Mr. McKenzie calls, quote, a fraud upon the American people, unquote. Welcome, David McKenzie. So, David McKenzie, before we start talking, I want to go over what the Innocence Project calls Eight facts about, are you, have you seen this? Eight facts about Julius Jones? I believe I've perused over it, yeah. Okay. I'm just going to take these one by one. Yeah. One, their first quote-unquote fact is, Julius Jones was at home having dinner with his parents and sister at the time of the murder. However, his legal team failed to present his alibi at his original trial. His trial attorneys did not call Mr. Jones or his family members to the stand. Well, the family alibi, as I call it, is uh, completely bogus. He told us, which Mr. Savage and I testified to in the 311 hearing, that he was not at home. He uh, told Annalise Presley, who probably was the most uh, devastating witness to him, that he was not at home. He was on the south side, which is consistent with what he told Mr. Savage and I. There was an independent witness, witness by the name of uh, Brenda Cujo, who, if called to testify, would say that she was at the 
Jones' house, but it was the night before. It was July 27th, 1999, not July 28th, 1999, which is the day that Mr. Howe was murdered. So it, completely bogus. And in reading the 311 hearing, which I wasn't, uh, other than giving my testimony, I wasn't present for because the rule of sequestration had been invoked. Rita Cujo said that she was intimidated by the Jones family. They were very upset with her that she would testify truthfully against Julia. So it was, it was just a dead-in-the-water kind of argument that nobody would have ever run. And in fact, the lawyers assigned to his 311 hearing, uh, Gina Walker and Carolyn Merritt, they had proposed several issues for the Court of Criminal Appeals to remand to the district court for an evidentiary hearing. And that's the one that they sent back to Jerry Bass to have him address. And they were both very disappointed in that because that was the weakest evidentiary issue they had. In fact, Gina Walker like this told me that this is going to go nowhere. It's, uh, it's bogus, and uh, you did the right thing by not putting the Jones family on to commit perjury. Were they willing to commit perjury for Julius? They were willing to testify for Julius. Now, Madeline Jones, uh, Julius's mom, and his father are nice, very nice people. I think they've wrapped their mind around the fact in trying to save their son that perhaps they're right. They were willing to take the stand, to answer your question, they were willing to take the stand and say that. Would it be perjury? I mean, you have to know you're lying to, to commit perjury. It has, it has some kind of a willfulness intent to it. Do they know they were lying? Uh, based upon the testimony of Brenda Cujo, it kind of sounds like it, but that's something that's came to my um, attention in the last month or two. Okay, uh, number two, Mr. Jones did not match the description of the person who committed the crime, which was provided by a sole witness, I believe they're speaking of Megan Toby. The person who killed Mr. Howe was described as having one to two inches of hair, but Mr. Jones had a shaved head. He did not have a shaved head. He had a short haircut. What they're doing is taking a really good cross-examination by me and exploiting that to say that the implication is that there was hair sprouting out, and it, it's, it's, it's grown from a half an inch to, based upon your recitation, up to two inches. Well, that's not exactly what she said. She said a half an inch, maybe up to an inch. So she used a bad choice of words, and um, based upon that, I got her to admit that the description may not have been Julius. Now, physically, Julius and uh, Chris Jordan are the same. They're same height, same weight. Both had uh, teenage boys' bodies. They hadn't developed uh, into man bodies. Um, so the only, the only thing that they bring up is this hair coming out. And, you know, the, the jury heard it. Uh, they didn't buy it. So it is what it is. And you can't take it any further than I took it. It, it was taken to the logical extreme breaking point, and it, it didn't work. So there's nothing that uh, Team Arizona can do with it or any other lawyers can do, and the Innocent Project, and in, in continuing to beat that dead horse, uh, continued to bring that up. It's based upon a, a hair length. It's not based upon anything else other than that, because physically, as I said, they were exactly the same. So they really should thank you for starting that, at least. I mean, <laughs> they took it and ran with it, right? But uh, 
Well, I, I mean, that doesn't that come from your cross-examination? I mean, shouldn't they they thank you instead of uh, trashing you all over town? They need to do what they need to do to save their client. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And uh, whatever they need to do within reason, you don't get to lie. You don't get to embellish. I was faced with tough facts. I didn't have the ability to go on ABC News and make up stuff as they have done. I'm in the... the uh, white hot spotlight of the courtroom as was Mr. Savage and trying to get by and trying to help this man so that uh, he's not convicted of murder and conspiracy and possession of a firearm after former felony conviction. We did the very best we could. Should they thank me? Um, well, they, they certainly have run with that cross-examination. So, yeah, they should thank me. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Okay, so... Um, three people incarcerated with Mr. Jordan at different times have said in sworn affidavits that Mr. Jordan told them that he committed the murder and framed Mr. Jones. Yes. Um, there was Emmanuel Littlejohn. There was uh, Christopher Barry, who was a client of mine. It was after my representation of Julius, so I, I have no, no opinion on, on what this guy said. Emmanuel Littlejohn was completely unbelievable. Had mental health issues. Um, I don't recall this happening, but apparently we had him take a polygraph test. In that polygraph test, he came back as inconclusive. I don't know why we would ever have done that. And he's on death row. Uh, his testimony would have been completely inconsequential and possibly could have inflamed the jury. Now, what you have to remember when you're defending somebody is that you're not supposed to do any harm. And to put him on would have been insane. Malcolm Savage and uh, Willie Germany, who's an incredibly bright investigator. Uh, we went to death row and met with Mr. Little John, and it was just crazy. Now, with regard to Christopher Barry, who was, mm -hmm. was uh, facing the death penalty, and Barry did not get a deal until after the Jones trial. Barry basically really harmed a child by burning the child in scalding hot water and then flung that child, slammed that child to the ground, killing him, 11 months old. It was his girlfriend's baby, the typical scenario that you, you see. She left him to take care of the child. When she didn't come home, he gets jealous, he gets enraged, and he uh, tortured and killed the little boy. Very traumatic case, more deserving of the death penalty than Julius, if you believe in that kind of thing. Chris never told me that, uh, that Jordan said that to him. It just never happened, and if it would have, it would have created this huge conflict of interest that I wouldn't have been able to represent either Barry or Jones because I would have had to tell Barry, don't talk to the authorities because they want to kill you, and they want to kill Jones, so if you say this, they're going to be more resolved to kill you, so can't do that, uh, which would have been stabbing Mr. Jones in the back by not putting this witness on, and he... It just wasn't credible, and, and well, not credible. I, I mean, I don't know. He never told me that to my face, that, that Christopher Jordan told that to him. So that's it's a crazy claim that they make. So you just said something interesting. You said, if you believe in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So do you not believe in the death penalty? You know, I'm a Roman Catholic, and I kind of have the same sort of philosophy that the church has, and you save the death penalty for people who could harm people in the future and you have to put them down. I hate to say that in the, the way that you would talk about an animal. The, the scenario is kind of the same. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if the government should be in the business of killing people. 
but the government is. So it's a last resort, and is it necessary? I, I'm not sure. I kind of waffle on it. So mm. um, I, I would just say that my philosophy is about the same as is, uh, as the Catholic Church is. Oh, I just want to talk about the juror and the N word. Mm -hmm. As we had this racist, did you have a racist juror at your at your trial? I think so. I, I do think so. Hmm. However, the the thing that's come up recently with this young lady saying that uh, that she reported to the court uh, to Betty Lawson, who was the bailiff, and then Betty Lawson uh, gave that to Jerry Bass, who was the trial judge, um, that the N word was used. That that. That never came up. It just didn't because say what you want about Jerry Bass and his inability to be a judge, and he should never ever have been a judge. He was kind of a a dunce, you know, in a lot of different ways. I'm not a fan of Jerry Bass. We'll get to him. <laughs> Good, but he would not have tolerated that. Um, it, it, it didn't happen, and we we talked to her. We talked to all the other jurors contemporaneously with that note being passed, and, and or the the wasn't a note. It was this young lady, Miss Armstrong, I think her name was, went to the judge or went to, to Betty and said, hey, this guy says we should take him out back and bury him under jail for what he's done. No racial epithet or slur or anything like that in any way. Did race play a, a, a role in this trial? Yeah, I think it did. I surely do. Yes. How so? Well, Edmond is a uh, is a white flight suburb. Back in the '60s, '70s, when uh, busing started to uh, happen, you had, as, as, as it's been described to me, your rich racists went to Edmond, your poor racists went to Moore, uh, which is uh, not uh, quite as affluent as Edmond. So I have no reason to disbelieve that, and I think. You said, how so? Did, did I believe that? It's just a feeling on my part. Mm -hmm. It's a feeling. Um, has anybody ever come up to me and uh, said, with regard to my representation of Julius Jones, that, uh, that, that do they use racial slurs? Or anything like that? now, that's never happened, but you know it when you see it. You, you feel it. So you're no longer Julius Jones's lawyer. That's correct. But you advocate for his innocence. You said in, in Shelley Levesay's um, podcast, I'm not going to say he's not innocent. Okay. This is one of those things I have to be careful with because of uh, my obligations, which are continuing to Julius Jones. Okay. And um, if he's executed, I'll have other things to, to say about this. But, <laughs> okay. Um, I, I try to help him as best I can. What Team Arizona has done is they started lying about uh, various things, and we're going through those right now with the mm -hmm. Project Innocent thing, the, the um, eight uh, reasons that Julius Jones is innocent. And that is what's frustrating to me because, you know, if you want to advocate for Mr. Jones, talk about the, the things that point towards his innocence. Team Arizona hadn't read the transcript, I'll tell you that. Because if they would have read the transcript, they will see in my cross-examination of Megan Toby and my closing argument that there are things I said and demonstrative things I did that show that she might be incorrect. And it had to do with uh, grabbing my hair and pulling it out, showing to the jury, 
as I did when I cross-examined her and getting her to admit that was a sprout of hair. Have they ever brought that up? No, hell no, they haven't brought it up. You know, which is wildly ineffective because that's the best thing they have. Now, could that have been a fray from the stocking cap or, or something like that? Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. But you take what you have when you're a criminal defense lawyer and you cross-examine and you exploit things people say. And she said those things. And I, I, I can't believe they haven't brought that up. I, can, I cannot believe they haven't brought up uh, a lot of other things with regard to his innocence. Instead, what they want to do is lie and, and conceal and just do horrible, unethical things. And it's, it's not conducive to helping Julius. We got to rely upon the facts, what the witness said, that kind of stuff. And they seem to be unwilling to do that. So if they said that you were a great lawyer, you did a great job with this case, and they still use the same talking points, would you still be giving interviews? Yes. You know, try, trying to, to help Julius out as best I can, given the fact that they lie. And it has nothing to do with me. And I, Part of being a death penalty advocate is you fall on the sword. They're not helping me help him because they lie and they cheat and they steal. And it's unfortunate. So, yes, to answer your question, it has nothing to do with me. Well, I'm angry for you. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold your grudge. If you don't have a grudge, I have a grudge because I've read some of the uh, record and I think it's, it's really um, obscene the way that they're painting you as disinterested. This is the most passionate, one of the most passionate defenses that, that I've ever read in a transcript by a defense attorney. So before you were asked to be in The Last Defense, had you been following the trend of these kind of activist documentaries that always kick off a wrongful conviction campaign, like Making a Murderer and the Serial Podcast? Just those come to mind. Yes, yeah. I had. Um, as a child, uh, my brother, uh, who has passed, told me about Reuben Hurricane Carter and, in fact, went to uh, a concert in Houston called The Night of the Hurricane where uh, Bob Dylan and, and various other uh, people performed in an attempt to raise money so that Mr. Carter could pay for lawyers and experts and, and this and that. And uh, In fact, there was a Hollywood movie called The Hurricane that uh, Denzel Washington starred in. And so I, I grasped that story. I loved that song by Bob Dylan. Uh, listened to it all the time. Interesting, uh, interestingly enough, Bob Dylan doesn't perform it anymore. And I have an opinion on why he doesn't. Not since 1976 or yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in, in studying that case, uh, unfortunately, I came to the conclusion that uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter was guilty. And uh, you and I discussed that off the record a few minutes ago. But so, uh, following um, activism and uh, helping people out that have been wrongfully convicted or wrongfully accused, I've I've done that my whole life, long before I became a lawyer. Do you think you've had actually innocent people? Actually innocent people. I have, and uh, that's more pressure than than you can handle as a lawyer. 
because those are the ones you worry about. Those are the ones that you have to. And it, it, it breaks your spirit. It breaks your heart. Um, but those people I've been very fortunate with because I believe in their innocence so much and, and, and able to demonstratively show that they're innocent, that those never go to trial. I'm able to sit down with the prosecutor. I'm able to sit down with like David Prater, who's the district attorney of Oklahoma County, and talk to them, lawyer to lawyer, uh, not in a competitive sense or not um, adversarial, and just go through the evidence. And, and those moments when you're able to get a, a case dismissed because somebody's actually innocent doesn't happen in the courtroom. But I tell you what, Roberta, it's the, it is the most pleasurable thing that I've ever done. And it makes me feel good to have a, a bar card and, and the ability to help people when I'm able to do that. Because when it gets to, to trial, that's a dangerous situation. And innocent people can be convicted. Mm-hmm. I've never had to go to trial on an innocent person before, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So when they called you to take part in the last defense, what did they tell you the project was? And what did you know about it before you participated in it? What they told me was that uh, they were thinking about uh, doing something about Julius Jones' case. What they told me was it appears that he's guilty, uh, and they don't see why uh, there's any interest in this. That goes on several months, and you know, I didn't really think about it a whole lot. It's ABC News here in New York. And then they scheduled a, uh, a filming uh, at my office in Oklahoma City. Um, I, I think uh, it, their initial theory was that it was racist, the prosecution was racist, because those are kind of the questions that uh, they ask me and um, how they address me. And none of this stuff about the, the bullshit family alibi or uh, hair length or anything like that, that didn't seem to come up. Um, so I spent a full day talking to them uh, on camera, uh, and they, when it was over with, they said, yeah, this is not going to go anywhere. And apparently, I really feel like I've done the Howe family a disservice because in falling on the sword, I gave them a lichpin to run the series and, and all this uh, stuff with regard to, I mean, everything that's going on at the present time. And what I said was I didn't think I did a very good job and in my cross-examination of Christopher Jordan. And, I mean, you could see they were like uh, like jackals, you know, on a meet uh, with that. And they came back and they had me wear the same clothes and you know, same tie and all that. And then they asked me questions that would fit into those narratives. Um, and I should have seen it coming because they, they refused to present me or give me any transcripts or anything like that. Um, but I trusted... Uh, I. I trusted these Arizona lawyers who I had talked to. I talked to Amanda Bass, and I talked to uh, the investigator and in an attempt to help Julius. I mean, I don't want somebody to die on my fucking watch. I mean, I mean it just is what it is. And so I, I bent over backwards to try to help them, and then they, they bastardized it uh, with lies and half-truths and that kind of thing. So to answer your question about what did they tell me uh, they told me that uh, I don't know why we're here. I don't know why the fuck we came down from New York to film you, dude. But uh, this lady out in Hollywood uh, has some interest in the case. And I, the last defense is also 
there's another young lady that uh, was convicted of murder and received the death penalty. Charlie Routier. Yes, yeah. Okay. Who is wildly guilty. I mean, <laughs> I've done an episode. Yeah, I've done two episodes on her. Yeah. I mean, goddamn. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she's just, it's just out of control how guilty she is. Um, so I don't really understand uh, why they picked those two to kind of to hang their hat on, but it well, is. I mean, these are, it's produced by two executive producers. I don't know if people understand what executive produce means. It means I come to you, I come to ABC, this is my idea, I get money from it, by two Innocence Project lawyers. So, I mean, you're talking about unethical. I find that highly unethical. They're making their own propaganda, and ABC is running it. But you said you feel responsible to the house. How so? I feel responsible in the sense that I, I made that statement about not doing a very good job on cross-examining him. And that's, that's kind of where they, uh, they hung their hat on, that, that uh, they became uh, electrified with that statement. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, uh, you know, uh, you read it. Uh, it it's... it's I mean, it is what it is. I could have... Uh... He was a terrible witness. I, we were just talking beforehand. Chris Jordan was a terrible witness. Not only could they... They didn't need him. The prosecution didn't need him to convict Jones, in my opinion. He didn't help out very, very much. He he, he said the gun wasn't... The, they showed him the gun, and he said, oh, no, the gun that Julius had that night had a black handle. No. I mean, that's terrible when you have a big display up in front of the jury. That doesn't look great. So... Cross-examining him, I think I just kind of gave up because uh, isn't it true, Mr. Jordan, you're a liar? Yes. Uh, did you lie about this? Yes. Did you lie about that? Yes. Did you lie to your lawyers? Yes. Did you cause them to file an incorrect pleading or letter? Yes. You know, I mean, how, how far are you going to take it? It got him to admit a bunch of times that he's a liar. But I don't know if the jury didn't. They may not have believed him, but Annalise Presley was devastating. Miss McPhail took her, and I should have taken that witness. I mean, that was horrible. Um, you have to think about Liddell King, who Mr. Savage took and did a damn good job because Malcolm Savage is a hell of a trial lawyer. But he said that Julius admitted to him that he committed the murder. Okay, he sees him with the bandana. Did he get a deal for his testimony? Well, hell yes. I, I defy you to go to any, to go to the criminal courthouse here in New York. Uh, in big cases, they're going to have criminals testifying against other criminals. It's part of the system. It's been part of the system since we became a nation back in the 1700s. It's part of it. This isn't new to what is going on with the system. Now, are they convicted felons? Yeah, we get to tell the jury that. And the jury is instructed, well, their credibility is uh, kind of an issue because they're a convicted felon. They've made prior statements. They've admitted lying, all that kind of stuff. And it's up to the jury to decide whether or not they're going to believe them. In Oklahoma, we have a jury instruction that says, it says you are the sole determining force on the credibility of witnesses. You can believe part of it. You can believe none of it. You can believe all of it. It's up to you to decide. 
And I don't know what they believed or what they didn't believe. Uh, Christopher Jordan, he was just there. I, I mean, I can't believe that the state of Oklahoma made a deal for him. They did not need him. He should be sitting on death row, if you believe in that kind of stuff, with Julius Jones. Mm -hmm. Because he's under the law, under Tyson versus Arizona, as the wheel man, he's subject to the death penalty. That's where, I think Shelley Levesay said, that's where the wheelman got death and the, the shooter got some kind of deal. Is that right? Or, or Tyson versus Arizona, as I remember the case, and I haven't read it in a long time, stands for the proposition that uh, you don't have to be the trigger man to get death. Mm -hmm. If you are a significant participant in the sequence of events that leads to a death, then you are subject to the death penalty. And Tyson... Mr. Tyson was broken out of Arizona prison by his two sons. Um, then Mr. Tyson, being the, the wild criminal he was, carjacked and kidnapped a couple, a couple, as I recall, took them out in the middle of the desert and shot them in the head. The children, the two boys, received death as well because they broke him out of prison. So it was foreseeable and it's significant to his murder that uh, they're accessories to murder. And it was significant enough that they could receive the death penalty. This is something really I found fascinating in the record. Sandra Elliott, the prosecutor, starts her opening statement. And not even five minutes in, she starts to tear up. Mm -hmm. And uh, you immediately called for a mistrial. And you told the judge, I understand this is a very sad case, and I will tell the court that when I read the transcript of the preliminary hearing, I wept as well. So what's that like when you find a case so sad, but you still have to put on a defense? What's it like having to, to defend someone in a case that you have so much sympathy for the victim? You put that aside. And... I remember that exact moment because I remember standing at the bench and putting my hand on the small of her back and rubbing her back because she was crying. And I also remember reading that transcript. It was on a Saturday. And I've got the paper in front of me reading the transcript and hearing, which is a very distinct sound, my tears hitting the paper, which is an incredibly distinct sound that I'll never forget. And it struck me because uh, the little girls and their father... Uh, being shot in front of them. And as I, I'm a father to three boys, and I would not want my children to see me murdered uh, in front of them. That would be horrible. So I think uh, I wept because of that, because I could put myself in Mr. Howe's shoes. And, and I wept for the little girls who lost their father, but it was more with regard to Mr. Howe. As far as defending somebody uh, that's accused of such a a callous act, um, you put it aside. Like Chris Berry, that is a case that I had nightmares about because I saw the autopsy photos of that little boy. He was 11 years old. And children, uh, when they're dead, look like they're sleeping. They don't look like, like a grown adult. And in that case, um, they had peeled down the skin on his face, pulled it down, and he looked exactly like my middle son, Nathan, who was that age at that time. Uh, I had nightmares about it. I remember, and I'm gonna tell you something that kind of shameful, but it happened. Uh, I was so distressed over it, I started wetting the bed. 
That's how distressed I was over that, seeing those auto uh, autopsy photos. Uh, I like Chris Berry. You know, he did something that uh, is despicable, and uh, I don't think he should be judged for his work, worst act, but it was absolutely horrible. And I, we see things as criminal defense lawyers that uh, we ought not to see because you can't unring that bell. And it's hurtful and it's tragic. You, you, do, you put it aside as best you can. Um, but when, when Sandy started crying during her opening, which was incredibly effective, I remember hearing this and thinking, I'm going to use this someday. And it was, uh, they went to Brahms and Mr. Howe, 21 minutes to live. They get their ice cream. He had 19 minutes left to live. She did the countdown. And it got to the point that, um, yeah, she started weeping. And those were legitimate tears. And I felt for her. Do you think you, there, a mistrial should have been declared because of that? No. Do you think that prejudiced the jury? No. Um, yeah, I think it probably did. But, you know, to get to the point of a mistrial, it, it has to be pretty egregious. And uh, the point was made. The objection was made for appeal. Uh, Sandy was admonished, don't, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, She was given some time to pull herself together. Yes, she was. Um, so... I think you also called for a mistrial so many times in this case. What advantage does that have to a defendant for a mistrial to be declared? In a trial, if there's a conviction, the case goes up to the, the appellate court, and there's a transcript that's made that um, is an actual word-for-word, -word question, answer, all that kind of stuff. So when there is something that shouldn't come in or you think shouldn't come in, you object, just like you're on TV. And if the judge sustains it or overrules it, especially a death penalty case, you have to ask for a mistrial in order to protect that record in case of a conviction so that the defendant gets a new trial. So mm -hmm. did I want a mistrial? Hell no. I want to get that, want to get that <laughs> goddamn thing over with, but it, you know it is what it is. There's three defense lawyers. There's you. There's Malcolm Savage and Robin McPhail. And you and Malcolm, uh, I'm sorry, is that Malcolm Savage are close? <laughs> How did Robin McPhail come into this, and what was the dynamic in your team? Robin came in because she had uh, rabbits, Bob Rabbits, and offered her a job out of law school um, to come to the uh, public defender's office, and she had worked as a legal intern with the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System, OIDS as we call it, uh, doing death penalty stuff. Not participating in court because you typically wouldn't do that unless you had a legal intern's license or were a lawyer. But she knew about the second stage and how you present uh, mitigating circumstances in order to save somebody's life. So when Rabbits uh, told us that she was coming on board she either had not passed the bar yet or had passed the bar and was waiting to be called to the bar to be sworn in. So she's really green. Oh, super yeah. Super green. Oh, super green, yeah. Just very quickly, what was your issue with Judge Jerry Bass? Bass doesn't have the intellect to be a judge. And Bass had been a lawyer for two or three years when he was appointed to be a special district judge in, the, in Oklahoma County, which means you're a magistrate judge. He had buddied up with a guy by the name of Chuck Black, who was a judge, who reversed and remanded Black 
to what we call her Daddy Black, who was just a nightmare as a judge, just completely unfair. And Bass would go hang out with him. They drink coffee and they smoke cigarettes, because back in that time, back at that time, you could you could smoke in the courthouse. And Black got him appointed uh, as a baby lawyer to to be a special judge. And then he ran to be a district judge, which is an elected position, and won over a, a guy that was a far better lawyer and judge, a guy by the name of David Harbour, who passed away recently. And Harbour eventually became a district judge. But Jerry's just a dunce. He's a fucking <laughs> dunce. You know, and, and and during that trial, he got pushed around quite a bit by Sandy Bath or Sandy Elliott and um it was just a nightmare. Nobody liked to practice law in front of him, and he was particularly mean to women. He would pick on uh, uh, women, either prosecutors or public defenders or female uh, private lawyers, to the point that rabbits uh, in assigning courtrooms would not send any female lawyers to his courtroom. He would belittle them and attempt to make them cry, and sometimes he did make them cry. Um, uh, the greatest lawyer in the world is a guy by the, name, by the name of David Autry. And uh, he flipped out at Autry one time, and I, which is unusual for Bass. He usually just picks on women. Uh, told uh, Autry that he needed mental health treatment or something to that effect. I'm like, yeah, fuck you, Jerry. He was just kind of the laughingstock of the courthouse. And, and finally, he, thank God, he retired. What did you think of the clemency hearing? Well, I mean, it was obvious the fix was in that... Um, these uh, pardon and parole board members were going to do what they were going to do. How was it obvious to you? Because they had the, uh, the commutation hearing, and they basically said the same thing during the commutation hearing. They, they obviously had not read the record. and To be on the pardon and parole board, you have to swear to uphold the law of the state of Oklahoma. And unfortunately, the state of Oklahoma uh, has the death penalty. Apparently, we've got a couple of them that don't want to use the death penalty, which is fine, but you don't have a... It'd be like being a, a juror in a death penalty case and saying you're against the death penalty. Well, you're disqualified from being a juror in a case. And that's kind of what they were doing. I mean, and then the one of them retweeting uh, Kim Kardashian. Yeah, he gave a TED Talk where he compared compared uh, incarceration to slavery, yeah. Adam Luck. <laughs> I mean, what kind of background do you have to have to sit on a pardon and parole board? I'm not sure. I know Richard Smotherman. Richard, yeah. yeah, he was a DA guy, a friend of mine. Um, we used to play softball together, and he's been a friend of mine for 30 years. For most of his legal career, was a prosecuting attorney and was the elected district attorney in Pottawatomie and Lincoln County in Oklahoma. Um, has since retired. And because you can't be active in the practice of law, criminal law, either prosecution or defense, and be on the pardon and parole board. Th those are his qualifications. These, Luck and Kelly Doyle, I, I don't know what their qualifications are. Do you think they should have recused themselves? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, okay. What are the rules at a pardon and parole board uh, compared to, are there any rules to, to a clemency hearing? And are you sworn in like you are in court? And are there any consequences for breaking those rules? I mean, we saw that they switched the date from Friday to Monday for this clemency hearing mm -hmm. with more stringent rules about impartiality. 
I think you can make a good case that Kelly Doyle and Adam Luck aren't impartial. I'm just trying to figure out where this clemency here is part of our legal system, but are you not sworn in? What happens if you break the rules at these clemency hearings? Anything? I don't know. It's a head scratcher. I don't practice. I mean, I've done a few things in front of the pardon the parole board. Lawyers never sworn in. You have a duty of candor to the court. And so Amanda Bass could, you know, say her thing and um, without being sworn in. As far as witnesses, uh, all the pardon and parole board stuff I've done, there's no, there have been no witnesses. It's simply an argument. So for Julius to, to come in and testify, one would think that he would, uh, that they would swear him in. But um, I don't know if it's one of those tribunals that if you lie that you're subject to perjury. I mean, I, I, just, I don't know. They, I mean, you, you've asked me some questions that uh, every lawyer in Oklahoma now are going, what the fuck is up with a pardon and parole board here? Clemency means, means mercy. Mm-hmm. So to relitigate guilt or innocence is clearly not what their task is. It is should have been that, uh, well, Julius is a good kid, uh, you know, he, a very well-respected member of the Blood Gang and uh, is a leader in the Blood Gang, and uh, for that he should receive mercy. That was joking. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, do you think if he had reached over and, and strangled his lawyer next to him that he would have given him clemency? Yes. Yes. It's it's insane, and it makes us look bad as a state. Our legal system, and it's it's not great, but goddamn, it's not it's it's not as bad as what the the, the people of the United States saw in this uh, pardon and parole hearing. It, uh, they're talking about injustice, and they're just creating. This is a way to create injustice. There's no checks and balances here. They just want to on these media campaigns. There are no rules. There's no punishment for lying to a documentary crew or the media or, or they want to they, they want to sort of take apart our justice system at the same time creating a totally new unjust system it's very disturbing it's disturbing but I think if you come to the conclusion that I've come to and it's uh, this is an abolitionist movement with mm. regard to Julius Jones because what uh, his lead supporter told me was yes he did it but we need a martyr. So, meaning, kill him so that we can have somebody that uh, we said was, uh, could say is, uh, was wrongfully executed. But what they didn't anticipate is that all the pushback from David Prater and, and Mike Hunter and, and John O'Connor and, and all these people because the, the Howe family kind of, you know, backed off. They uh, didn't really do anything. So we have millions and millions of dollars pumped into a, a PR campaign that has been incredibly effective. And I, you know, I will tell you that um, when I met with Amanda Bass and, uh, and, and at one point talked to Mr. Bache, I said, you know, get me off the fucking hook here. I don't want somebody to die on, their wa- on my watch. And they're about to do it. And so they, they maybe have kind of done what I asked them to do. I just didn't ask them to lie, cheat, and steal. You said some really interesting things on the Lawyers, Mon- Mon- <laughs> Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast, you said, I expect lawyers to act a certain level of um, morals. I'm using my honesty. words, not yours. Honesty and morals, right? And here, are the, here, here comes these... Uh, what, what were your interactions with them like? 
I met with Amanda Bass and the investigator a couple of times, and I don't remember the investigator's name, but she's, she's on the last defense. Uh, they came to my office and we talked about things. I was kind of nonplussed by them. I mean, you know, I, I didn't have a bad feeling about them, didn't necessarily have a good feeling about them. I just remember begging them, please get me off the fucking hook here. Uh, I met Dale Bache. I was uh, in the building that uh, I office in, in Oklahoma City. There's a restaurant down there, and I was um, down there at lunch one day, and somebody tapped on my shoulder, and it was Dale. And uh, we chatted for a little bit. Um, and um, I said, you know, pass. This was after the last defense came out. And I wasn't pleased with it, but uh, I didn't know it was going to go to this extent that it's gone to now. Uh, you know, and, uh, pass on my best to uh, Amanda Bass and uh, uh, good luck, guys. And uh, she sent me a, uh, he texted that to her and she sent me an email immediately. So. So were you surprised to hear your interview played at the clemency hearing? A little bit, yeah. I, you have a duty of keeping confidences of clients, but when those clients attack you, you have the ability to defend yourself. And um, I think the, the one thing they played was uh, with regard to Julius not testifying and that whole line of, I mean, it's this fucking horse shit. I mean, it's a lie. It couldn't... It, it couldn't be more untruthful. <laughs> what were your feelings when you're watching Mr. Smotherman walk him into that lie about I didn't testify because I didn't want to show emotion in front of the jury and then he changed it to the judge? It couldn't have gone worse. I've never seen a witness that bad. He was absolutely horrible. Then he got shitty with Richard Smotherman, you know, kind of towards the end of it. And I'm like, wow, dude. First of all, you've got the fix. You know you've got a fixed panel, the pardon and parole board. Why put him on the stand? Why do that? Other than you've kind of promised it. But if they would have said, yeah, we've decided not to do that, you've still got the same result. Why put it out there other than you're fucking incompetent and allow him to lie? And the deal about the Mercedes carjacking, that they, there wasn't any evidence that he did that? Oh, fucking hell. I mean, it was crazy. Was there more evidence in that case than than yes? How? Uh-huh. There's more physical evidence in that mm-hmm. case. It was well, you had a paper car tag that uh, Doctor Lapsey's car was had been purchased within days of uh, of the carjacking. There was a paper tag in there. That's how we do it in Oklahoma. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I don't I don't know what you guys do up here in New York, but. Um, and, and, you know, you just write in the names and the, the day, it's good for 30 days and uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, obviously, you can't have Dr. Lapsey on that. Uh, it's going to draw attention. So there's a paper tag that uh, says whatever it says uh, as far as the purchaser, and, which was dummied up. But it was in Julie's handwriting with 100% certainty. So that creates a problem. And you had somebody s- saw him driving that car. You had the key fob to that was found in Chris Jordan's cutlass, which, okay, that goes both ways. I mean, you say that Jordan jacked it, but why the fuck is it at Julius's apartment? Um, I mean, just a bunch of stuff that, why put him on because you know that's going to come up? And there's, sometimes there are things you cannot explain, and uh, try as you might. 
So you would have just advised him to say nothing at that clemency hearing? Well, it's, it's certainly his decision whether to testify mm -hmm. or not. That goes back to 19. Oh, right, right, yeah, right. right. Yeah. Okay. Whether he, if, if he wants to get up there and do it, fine. But uh, he would have been very well advised not to, not to testify because it was so brutally bad. Which lawyers decided to test the bandana? And, and I have a sort of a hypothetical. Had that bandana, and you see this in a lot of Innocence Project cases, either it's too degraded or there's just, or there's some kind of partial DNA on it that can never be matched to anyone and they declare innocence. It came back with Julius Jones, a match to him. But if they did, if it had gone the other way and there had been either a partial or no DNA, would that have helped him, you think? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it would have, um, but why would you test something that, that you, under those circumstances, that um, that you've got an agreed court order that whatever the results are are coming to the prosecution. So um, that's a dangerous game to play, and that dangerous game exploded in their face. Um, it came back, uh, five loci, uh, or seven loci out of 21 to match Julius. Which means that it's only a one in a hundred and ten million, to the exclusion of one a uh, hundred and ten million African Americans in the United States, instead of quadrillion or cadillion or whatever those crazy words are they use. So I mean that's one in one hundred and ten million is an identification. Now, why would you test that? They didn't know what they were doing. They got him in a bind with that DNA. It was just insanity. And what they did was uh, there were preliminary results came down, and they knew the results were, and they asked the lab not to tell David Prater. They tried to conceal it. They tried to hide it. Mm. Prater had to go to court or either threaten to get a court order or get a court order saying, you're going to divulge this to us. But now they want to say it, it had no really evidentiary value. Well, it goddamn sure did have evidentiary value. And as I said in Shelley's podcast, I mean, the biggest fuck-up legally since Chris Darden asked O.J. to try on the gloves. Uh, I, I'd agree with that. This has been a fascinating, fascinating talk. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>